0: minimum of 4 lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account $5 more per line without auto pay plus taxes and fees phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due $35 per line connection charge applies ctmobile.com good morning and welcome to the morning briefing for Wednesday August 8th 2018 I'm your host, Eric Dame. Jake Hughes is your producer. And coming up on today's edition of the show, we are going to talk to Chinin Nuntavong from the American Legion. You may know Chinin from his work in their media relations department. Well, he's been promoted and is now in charge of Veterans Affairs and Rehabilitation for the Legion. We're going to talk to him about a number of items that he is going to take on head on after taking on that new position. And then later, we're going to talk to Dan Hampton, Air Force veteran, fighter pilot, and author about his new book, Chasing the Demon. Now, you may have heard about Chuck Yeager breaking the sound barrier. Chasing the Demon throws a little wrinkle into what you think you might know about that story. It's very interesting stuff, and I look forward to talking to Dan about the book coming up just a little bit later in the show. So, a lot of great interviews coming along, and we're going to start it off by doing, uh, well, what we start off every day doing, which isn't really an interview, but just a chat with Jake Super Producer Hughes. Jake, good morning. How are you today?
1: I'm doing fantastic. Eric, how are you? I'm
0: good. What didn't take me an hour and a half to get here today. <laughs> I got here faster than normal. There was less traffic. Although I did see one weird thing. So there was an accident, and the two cars, after they hit each other, ended up stopping on opposite sides of the uh, the highway. So, like, there's... I think five lanes at this point, <laughs> and to get their information to each other, they were using hand signals across the road. Like the woman standing there putting up fingers for what her license plate is, and the other guys writing them down on the other side. It was uh, it was kind of fascinating and good to see that sort of teamwork that they figured out how to do that. Uh, and once you got past that accident, everything just sped up, and I flew along into work, and that was fantastic. So other than that, uh, pretty good. Although I'll tell you, man, yesterday was a long day for me. So we do the morning show. Then I go to working on producing CBS, I am veterans, the syndicated weekend show that airs around the country. And then I had to leave to go speak at the event that Purple Hearts Reunited hosted at the Reserve Officers Association. Talked about it yesterday. Uh, Did that. And then I had to go over uh, on Capitol Hill and get my new press badge for 2018 and then come back to work and do more work on the (laughs) syndicated weekend show. So by the time I got home, well... It was very sad for me that I had a massage scheduled for 4 p.m. because I'm a fancy guy and my back is really not good. So massages are kind of one of the things that helps me keep on functioning. Uh, I got stuck in traffic on the way home because I left a little bit later than normal. My wife ended up taking my massage appointment because I wasn't going (laughs) to make it on time. I got home and I basically went to sleep at like 6 p.m. and slept all the way through till this morning with a couple wake-ups in the middle of the night. So I'm very well-rested, but I'm also behind on that weekend show, and I need to finish producing it today, so we'll see what happens with that. Also, later today, it looks like we're going to be recording an interview with a guy who we talked about yesterday, Tim Kennedy, whose uh, new show, Hard to Kill, on Discovery, second episode aired last night. Uh, It was the episode on American Bullfighters. You may know him as Rodeo Clowns. He says, don't call them Rodeo Clowns. They're American bullfighters. I watched it, and oh, man, uh, I don't know why he seems to have the death wish that he has, but my (laughs) God, going up against a bull uh, just a couple hours after receiving some very uh, beginner training, he got flipped up in the air and probably like a good... Six feet up in the air, head over heels by a bull. Pretty interesting stuff. Uh, hopefully, we're going to talk to Tim later on today, and we'll play that for you uh, maybe tomorrow or maybe at some point next week before the show airs. I think it's on Tuesday. Well, yeah, today's Wednesday, so Tuesday nights is when the new episodes mm-hmm. air.
1: He should have done the calf robing contest. That would have been funny.
0: Uh, you know what? I, and he, I, I woke up. To watch a little bit of that show as I said I slept almost straight through from six I woke up at around uh, it comes on at 10 I woke up at like 9 45 for a little bit Watched the first half of the show and then fell back asleep so I didn't see the whole thing but uh, yeah we're uh, we're gonna be talking to him whether it's today or not we're gonna be talking to Tim again previous guest of the show about his uh, his new show hard to kill on Discovery Channel looking forward to that and uh, before we go any further Let's talk about the event that I spoke at yesterday. Uh, I was one of the readers at Purple Hearts Reunited's uh, seven-on-eight event where they reunited seven different families with Purple Heart medals that had gone missing for various reasons for veterans from World War One up to the present day. Uh, the Iraq veteran who was there, who was actually, uh, I believe, a uh, tanker. He was in your uh, first armor division, your old first armor division, who was awarded a Purple Heart, uh, but when they gave it to him, it was the wrong one. So he gave it back. Never got the right one until yesterday, thanks to Zach Fike and the team over at Purple Hearts Reunited. It was uh, an amazing ceremony, an emotional ceremony, well attended. A lot of uh, a lot of great people there from the veteran community in D.C. More importantly, the families of those Purple Heart recipients were there. Uh, recipients from each branch of service. You had a World War One veteran's family getting it back, and it was actually the son of that World War One veteran, who's ninety years old now, was there in attendance to receive that medal. Uh, really, just a great thing. The family that uh, that I was involved in the presentation of their metal. The Ayers family who uh, lived down in Arkansas, uh, uh, the uncle of the niece and nephew that were there died on the USS Houston, which was uh, a ship in World War II that was sunk off the coast of Indonesia. Um, He was one of hundreds who went down with the ship out there and just really an emotional thing and uh, an amazing thing to be part of and to see the beautiful display that Purple Hearts Reunited uh, put together for them, this framed Big frame thing where you had not just the Purple Heart medal, but in uh, in Chief Ayer's case, that was the one I read for, uh, a picture of his ship, uh, the uh, Purple Heart medal uh, box cover from back when he would have gotten it, back in 1942. Um, you, it, it was really just a great job, as expected. It's kind of what they do. And I also had the opportunity to tell the story, which uh, I think I've briefly touched on here before, but I'll tell it again. We had Zach on the show, and it was great talk. It was it was immediately clear that the work they're doing is amazing and fantastic, but it was just a story at that point. It's a guy sitting across from me telling me about what he does until a few months later when I actually got to be involved in what they do in a bit of a way. So someone found a Purple Heart, came across a Purple Heart medal, uh, the actual issued one with the name inscribed on it, and were able to track the man who received it to the town of Clinton, Connecticut. Thankfully, uh, well, well, first I should say they ran into a roadblock at that point. His family didn't seem to be in Clinton anymore. No one knew exactly where they'd gone to. So they ran into a bit of a dead end. They were having trouble finding anything more about the family in their effort to get the medal back to them. As luck would have it, the most devoted listener of this program, my mother is from (laughs) Clinton, Connecticut, saw a posting in a Clinton Facebook group and tagged me in that Facebook post. Now, As most of us know, whenever your mother tags you in a Facebook post and you see that notification come up, hold fast brace for impact you never know what it's going to be that you are tagged so i'm
1: very glad my mother is not on
0: facebook my mother just has a, a an innate ability to find the most untake and post the most unflattering pictures of me so i'll be like how fat do i look in this one <laughs> uh in that case i clicked on it and said oh wow this is uh something great because she said you know my son had someone on his show who deals with this and maybe he can put you in touch with him i did i tagged zach Fike and purple hearts reunited in that same post Within a few weeks, they had found the family and reunited uh, the medal with that family. It's it's one of the most revered medals in the United States military. It's right there with the Medal of Honor. And while we think of the Purple Heart as being awarded to someone who uh, is wounded in battle, it also goes to all of those who are killed on the battlefield, like Chief Ayers, who lost his life on board the Houston. Um, it, it's it's an important medal. It's The community around it is uh, a big one that really takes pride in those medals and believes that those medals should be with the families of those who receive them. There are numerous reasons why they come up, uh, show up in other places, whether they get lost. they—they uh, they, He talked yesterday, Zach, about how they found one at a Broadway show. The veteran was apparently wearing the Purple Heart medal while attending a Broadway show, and it fell off at some point and didn't realize it. They ended up finding that veteran and getting it back to him. There are a number of Uh, possible ways that that can happen, but the people at Purple Hearts Reunited can find anybody. And the families that talked yesterday about it talked about how shocked they were to have been found by Zach and the team at Purple Hearts Reunited. Uh, But they're truly doing amazing work over there. And yesterday, uh, I was... Really honored to be asked to be one of the uh, one of the readers who was there to read off, you know the uh, the the details of Chief Ayer's life and career in the Navy, and uh, really just a truly wonderful event. And if you ever come across a Purple Heart medal at a swap meet, at a garage sale, at anything like that, uh, get it if you can, and then contact Purple Hearts Reunited, and they will work tirelessly to make sure that that medal gets back where it belongs. What I learned yesterday, and, and and we talked about this with Zach on the uh, on the interview when he was here, but he went into more detail yesterday. The Purple Heart medal secondhand market for collectors who apparently collect these things like baseball cards, which it just isn't right. Uh, it doesn't no. feel right to me. They're talking like five to eight hundred dollars for a Purple Heart medal. So they're they're worth some money, and worth even more if you can tie it to a historical event. For example, as he said yesterday, uh, the Purple Heart medals from Pearl Harbor go for like five thousand dollars plus stuff like that. What? Yeah, they, they're they're. You ever watch the show Antiques Roadshow? Yeah. I love Antiques Roadshow. In fact, in Iceland, when I was stationed there, at lunch in our little uh, lunchroom there, there would often be about seven, eight sailors sitting around watching Antiques Roadshow and guessing what things were going to be worth and being wrong almost all the time. Um... The historical significance of something can make it worth more. So, if you have a purple heart that's tied to World War Two, or that's from World War One, or that's uh, from someone famous, something like that, uh, you will be able to get more money for it. Purple Hearts Reunited isn't asking for any money for what they do; they just do it, and they have volunteers around the country, veterans, uh, mostly Purple Heart recipients, who actually deliver those medals to the families, and again, just uh, check out the organization, really great work that they're doing, amazing, amazing stuff uh, within the Purple Heart community, and again, just an honor to be asked and to be able to take part and to meet the family of Chief Heirs and uh, and see the uh, profound effect that it had on them to get this back, and hearing more about him and more about the story, uh, really just uh, just an amazing Day. If you're not visiting ConnectingVets.com multiple times every day, well, my friend, you are messing up because we've got everything on there. And one of the best things that we have on ConnectingVets.com is the benefits in my backyard segment. Jonathan Kopanger is working through all 50 states and coming close to the end here. He doesn't have too many left to do. Some of the most recent ones I was looking through and found some pretty interesting things in there. Here's one from South Dakota a place that I've never been to, honestly. I may have been through it on a train once. I don't recall. My mother and I did take a cross-country train trip when I was like 13 years old. But the state of South Dakota pays a bonus to members of the military who were legal residents of South Dakota for more than six months before active duty. Veterans with qualifying service from August 1990 to December 1992 may receive one bonus of up to $500, $500. Veterans with qualifying service after January 1st, 1993 may receive another bonus of up to $500. Qualified veterans who are living outside of South Dakota can actually email for an application. Now, $500 isn't a ton of money, but that's maybe a couple of car payments. That's if you're struggling, that can be the difference between sinking or swimming, essentially, staying above the water or going down. And that's just one of the things available that you can find out by going and checking out South Dakota's uh, Benefits in My Backyard as put together by Jonathan Kopanger. Of course, there's also housing benefits, cemetery and burial benefits, entertainment benefits like hunting permits and lifetime state park entrances. Uh, There's career enhancement things, education, free tuition, tax breaks. There's all these things that are available and a lot of people just don't know about them. The Benefits in My Backyard segment That's keeping you up to date on them. And when Jonathan's done with benefits in my backyard, he's going to move on to something else that's going to let you know about the things that are available for veterans out there. And South Dakota, of course, you can't talk about South Dakota without talking about North Dakota, which, according to Jonathan, is the least visited state in the country. Oh, I did not know. South Dakota has Mount Rushmore and a lot of other uh, tourist destinations. North Dakota doesn't have quite as much going on for it. Uh, It does have Minot Air Force Base, so you do have a lot of uh, Air Force veterans who stay in that area. Some of them really like it out there. I don't understand that. It just seems like a barren wasteland in the middle of no place. Hey, North Dakota residents, don't come after me for that one. It's just uh, how I perceive it. And obviously I'm wrong because some Air Force vets like to stay out there. Of course, they've got education benefits, career benefits, family benefits, uh, including an oral health program. So these are not state-run clinics, mostly community-sponsored dental clinics, and typically there's a small fee charged, but it's dental health care for veterans, which, as we're going to talk about with Chinin from the American Legion later on today, the VA just doesn't do. Unless you had some sort of uh, maxillofacial dental injury that took place while you were in, they're not going to help you with dental when you get out. I I found that out when I got out. like I I had no idea. I thought, oh, I get health care from the VA for however many years. Dental must be included in that, right? Nope. Nope. <laughs> you get nothing when it comes to that. They also have a service dog grant, a loan program, food assistance program, uh, again, hunting and fishing licenses, state park fees are uh, are lowered for certain veterans, housing issues, cemetery and burial, that comes up all the time. Really a lot of great things out there, so you can go and check out those uh, Benefits in My Backyard segments at connectingvets.com uh, in the uh, uh, I think it's in the get help section there is where those are located but you can definitely find them there and Jonathan Copanger is doing a great job of putting them together as he works through all 50 states and if your state isn't up there yet I think he just put up Rhode Island too um, it's going to be soon because he's getting close to the end of his uh, his 50 state run through veteran benefits here's an interesting story we're just talking about housing benefits that are available Ben Carson who is the uh, Housing and Urban Development Secretary under President Trump, has said veteran homelessness is on the decline in this country. There's an article on ConnectingVets.com that asks, is it really? And that's an interesting question because, as we've talked about with numerous organizations before, it's hard to tell. And there are different ways of being homeless. There are people who are crashing on friends' couch, you know, couch surfing across the uh, country to have a a roof over their head, but they don't have their own home. They don't have a place where they're living. They're depending on the kindness of others. And homeless people, if they don't go into a shelter or they don't take any state benefits, it's hard to know how many are out there. But here's what we do know, that in a recent Miami Herald op-ed, Carson said that the latest national estimate finds that the number of veterans experiencing homelessness is on the decline in most parts of the country. But Phil Briggs, who did this story, says, according to the 2017 Annual Homeless Assessment Report, between 2016 and 2017, the number of veterans experiencing homelessness actually increased for the first time since 2010. So what Phil says is while some data contradicts what Carson is saying, Says if you look deep into those statistics, you can actually find that the numbers may be going down. According to the key findings in the report that came out last year, homelessness among veterans has actually dropped forty-five percent since two thousand nine. It is a tough one because there are a lot of different ways of looking at it. It's kind of like when the uh, the jobless reports come out from the government and what those jobless reports uh, are actually signify is those who are still seeking work. So if people gave up on trying to find jobs, aren't applying for. Uh, Uh, What do you call unemployment benefits or aren't eligible for unemployment benefits anymore? They're not counted in those numbers. So it can be a little bit misleading. But again, if you don't know how many, you can't say one way or the other. You can't say that it definitely is. Can't say that it definitely isn't. Uh, We hope that veteran homelessness is going down there are some states like my home state of connecticut says they've basically eliminated veteran homelessness
1: yeah what's that that term functional zero
0: yeah functional zero but if that were the case then why is a place like homes for the brave or uh, still in operation up there you know where they've they've got a uh, uh, they've got uh, a, a operation where they basically house people i mean if there aren't any homeless people why do we still have people seeking out uh, shelters and things like that i mean <laughs> It's never going to be at zero. Functional zero is a different thing. Um, and it's again, a lot of it's semantics and you go through it. There are always going to be homeless people. I, I don't foresee any time in the near future where there's no one who's homeless. There will always be people who have uh, issues that lead to them being homeless, whether it's financial, whether it's mental health. There's a lot of things that can lead to that. Uh, but I don't know. Anytime I hear someone say, oh, homelessness is eliminated, I go, really? Is it? I mean, I let's I know go take it,
2: a tour of the streets. Yeah,
0: I know it isn't where I live. I know if you drive, uh, I live just outside of Baltimore. You drive into Baltimore, right over near uh, Johns Hopkins and all the other places over there. There are people literally have like little bedrooms set up under underpasses. I saw one that had a full bed like a queen-size bed underneath an overpass that they were living in uh that's that's not a home there are still homeless people out there how many of them are veterans uh, it's certainly going to be a percentage and a portion um oftentimes in the past it's been a larger percentage than we make up of the actual population of the country so yeah we've got uh we've got something to deal with there and it's uh it's not a good thing but There are a lot of people working on it. The government's working on it. The VA's working on it. A lot of nonprofits are working on it uh, from various aspects, uh, and that's good to see and good to hear. But I don't know, man. Again, anytime I hear someone say, well, it's basically been eliminated, has it? I don't think so. I don't think it ever can be, but I think we can get things better. It can always be improved. And maybe someday down the road I'll be wrong and there won't be any homeless veterans or any homeless people within the United States of America. I hope that day comes, but I'm not holding my breath uh, for too long. Here's a story coming from Army Times that's uh, pretty disturbing about a young soldier who two weeks into his time as an Army Ranger allegedly murdered a woman and then took his own life. He was Private Krishna Mahadevan Prasad. He's a suspect in the death of a Bellevue, Washington woman at an Econo Lodge hotel and then apparently took his own life. So Washington State Police, according to Army Times, are investigating the July murder of this 38-year-old woman in a motel room. Prime suspect, Army Ranger, who was seen entering the room and the following day opened fire on two cars before turning the gun on himself. He was 20 years old, had reported to 2nd Battalion, 75th Ranger Regiment, uh, so he was a, a, a bat boy essentially. He was out there with the uh, the seventy fifth Ranger Regiment, second battalion, and apparently killed someone and then killed himself and fired at someone else. Just a, a bizarre, horrible story uh, that I ju- it just you wonder what the heck is going on. I mean you you've just achieved. Uh, it doesn't say. He was fresh out of training, uh, completed infantry one school and ranger selection at Fort Benning before heading out to Washington. But I don't think if you complete ranger selection, that doesn't mean you have your tab yet. Does it? Aren't those two separate ranger things? selection? No. Yeah. Go to the school. So he, he was not yet a tabbed ranger, but he was at 2nd Battalion, 75th Ranger Regiment, he'd gone through ranger selection. He'd gotten through that. Uh, things would seem to be going well from the outside. And then you see that this, uh, this guy apparently murdered someone allegedly and then took his own life, fired at a couple of cars as well. Just a, uh, a, a horrifying story that you don't want to see out there. But does go to remind you that just because of, uh, of what someone's got on their uniform or what unit they're with, that doesn't mean that they're a good person. You know, right. we've heard about that before. We've seen Navy SEALs accused of uh, of stealing from the government and reselling stuff, dealing drugs, taking steroids, all sorts of other things going on out there. I remember a a love triangle when I was stationed in Norfolk that involved a SEAL who killed a bunch of like two or three different people that were involved in this relationship stuff. Just because someone's got that that Trident, that Ranger tab, you know, they're they're special forces. That doesn't again doesn't mean that they're essentially a good person. Doesn't mean that they're perfect by any stretch of the imaginations. I think they'd be the first ones to tell you they are far from perfect just like anyone else is. But uh, still, this one sticks out, man. This is just not a good one. Uh, He was from Woodridge, New Jersey. Joined last September. uh, Infantry, one-station unit training, airborne school and ranger selection at Fort Benning. Headed out to Washington to the 2nd Battalion of the 75th Ranger Regiment. And uh, from there, uh, things things went off the rails. I wonder if we'll find out a little bit more about him, if there were any signs there, uh, what was going on, what was happening. I don't know if we'll ever know that, but I do know that this is this is horrible. And you feel for the family of that 38-year-old woman who was killed in a motel room. There's not a lot more detail on who she was and what the relationship uh, between those uh, two were. But apparently he had been staying in another room and apparently entered that woman's room, according to security footage, for approximately three minutes. So it sounds like someone that he didn't know. He just went in there for three minutes, killed her from what they're saying, and then drove off uh, in his uh, in his car and then shot at some cars later and then killed himself. Uh, the investigators found the woman with numerous cut wounds to the body, including what appeared, appeared to be an intentional mutilation occurring after death. So this is some really, really dark stuff, and you know what? I wish we didn't need to talk about that, but we talk about everything on this show—the good, like those benefits that are available, like that five hundred dollar bonus for veterans from South Dakota, and the bad stuff, like this uh, this young battalion ranger uh, who was, uh, or battalion ranger battalion member, I should say. I don't know. Do you call them a ranger if they're at the battalion? I they don't, don't have know. the tab yet. Yeah, it's one of those things where uh, I, we learned with Spencer Rapone, of course, the uh, commie cadet from West Point. He was at West Point, and he had the Third Ranger Battalion scroll on. He never got his Ranger tab, but he was at Third Battalion before being released for standards, which means he didn't uh, he didn't live up to the requirements in the Army Ranger Blue Book. Essentially, as we were the first ones to find out, uh, and uh, was he was he a Ranger? No, but. People were still kind of letting him sail through, according to one of his professors at West Point, because he had that 3rd Battalion scroll on his arm. So one of those interesting things that, as you said, you don't know. You were in the Army for 13 years, and you're like, I don't know. That's a whole different world over there. We cover each and every aspect of the military experience, whether it's the world of special forces, the world of the regular forces, everything that's going on is at ConnectingVets.com. And you can follow us on social media where we are at ConnectingVets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube coming up next we're going to talk to Chenin Nuntavong recently promoted over at the American Legion I'm going to talk to him about a number of issues relating to the VA and benefits for veterans and what he's working on in his new job and later Dan Hampton Air Force F16 pilot veteran and author of the book Chasing the Demon about the uh, the chase of breaking the sound barrier we're going to talk to him too some morning briefing back after this
2: We're CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets
0: every day. Online and all over social media. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. At Connecting Vets. Welcome back to the Morning Briefing, Wednesday edition. I'm your host, Eric Dame. Jay Hughes is your producer in ConnectingVets.com. That's your website, my friend. ConnectingVets.com is working to connect vets every day and along with vets, their families, their friends. Everything that we put out is for the veteran community and that goes beyond just the veterans. And we understand that because each and every member of our team is either a veteran themselves or closely related to a veteran, in that the new boss is actually an Army spouse. So, we understand what you're looking for, what you need, and we hope what you want. And that's what we're putting on ConnectingVets.com every day. The best way to be kept abreast of it, follow us on social media. We are at ConnectingVets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Our next guest is, let me check and see if I've got this name right, I don't know if I've ever spoken to him before, Chenin Nuntavong from the American Legion, who, of course, I joke because he's been on the show several times before, but is now coming on in his new position as the American Legion's Director of Veterans Affairs and Rehabilitation. Chenin, good morning and congratulations on the new job.
3: Uh, good morning, Eric. Thank you very much. It's, uh, it's an honor to, to serve veterans in this position.
0: Now we get to hold your feet to the fire instead of you bringing to the people bringing people to us for us to hold their feet to the fire are you sure you're ready for that Janine? Absolutely, absolutely. Nothing I can't handle. I'm a Marine. That's what we do. <laughs> That's very true. You're a Marine, and you've also been working in the veteran space for quite a while now, and in the position of Veterans Affairs and Rehabilitation, there's a lot for you to do right now. So, Marines are known for addressing challenges head-on. There are a lot of challenges facing the veteran community, and let's go ahead and get started on talking about some of those. First, I want to talk to you about the Blue Water Navy issue. Of course, we've talked about it before, but for those who aren't familiar, Navy veterans serving off the coast of Vietnam who were exposed to Agent Orange uh, as it was blowing off the coast, as it was being loaded onto aircraft, all sorts of different ways, have shown some of the same um, health, uh, you know, have, had some of the same health problems as those who were exposed on the ground in Vietnam, but were not eligible for the same benefits as those on the ground. That's something the American Legion wants to see changed, and soon, isn't it?
3: Absolutely, absolutely. We have we have veterans who, who suffer from... Um diseases that are linked, associated to Agent Orange, and they're not getting the same benefits because they didn't serve in the right area or what VA considers the right area. So, you know, we, we'd like to change that, absolutely. Um, and I just testified on that that fact uh, a couple days ago.
0: On Capitol Hill in front of Congress, right? And, and, This is something that, I mean, from a layman's perspective, from someone who, uh, you know, didn't serve in Vietnam, but certainly served in the military and in the Navy, I look at it and think, well, it certainly seems that all the information links up and shows that there's a connection here. What's the delay on getting this done? Shouldn't this be just like a snap your fingers and it gets through? What are we waiting for?
3: Yeah, just like uh, in in our generation, right, our our health care issue that we're currently fighting with with the with the VA is is the burn pit issue, right? We have service members who are suffering from um, diseases that that are associated with with burn pits, and this is the the burn pit of the Vietnam era, right? It's it's legislation that needs to get through. It's it's red tape, and for, for whatever reason, these these laws were put into effect, and VA is just following the, the, the policy. But we're trying to get th- things like this changed. Absolutely.
0: When we spoke to Senator Johnny Isaacson, who, of course, is the chair of the Senate Veterans Affairs Committee, he Likened the blue water issue to burn pits and said the blue water navy issue is similar to what could happen with burn pits if we continue to kick the can down the road. So it sounds like those are both issues he wants to address uh, sooner rather than later. What's the overall response been from the lawmakers on Capitol Hill to this? Is there anyone who who says we shouldn't be making these uh, these changes to make sure that veterans are taken care of?
3: No, we've we've received overwhelming support from our legislators. on this. As a matter of fact, the the House version of this bill passed on June 25th, 382 to zero. So there's overwhelming support that that this is going to happen. And I feel that from the Senate side as well. Um, The only pushback that we're getting is is from the VA, and that's unfortunate.
0: Why is the VA pushing back? Is it simply because this is going to cost them more money and, and cause some more budgetary strain on them?
3: Yeah, I can't speak on behalf of the VA, but uh, Dr. Lawrence, the, the Undersecretary of Benefits for the VA, testified, and, and he said that the science isn't there, which we know is not true. Um, their, their doctors interpret the science that was conducted on this very differently than, than other professionals have. So that is their, their sticking point.
0: When it comes down to it, which doctors and scientists are going to make those decisions? Is it going to be the VA's uh, people on their payroll? Because that would seem to be a conflict of interest if it's not in the VA's benefit financially to cover this. It seems like it should be something that's looked at by a third party, isn't it?
3: Absolutely. And that third party is the the Congress and and the the House and Senate. And and they're going to make it into a law that, hey, these these veterans are going to get their benefits.
0: What is it that the VSOs like the American Legion are able to do in a situation like this? I, I, are you able to uh, go and lobby the, the members of Congress? Are you able to speak to the VA? What is the process that you go through when there's uh, legislation like this Blue Water Navy legislation that you believe in so strongly? What do you do to back up that belief?
3: Yeah, we, we do exactly that. Exactly what you mentioned, Eric. We, we lobby on, on Capitol Hill to, to our congressmen. And then we also talked to the VA and we're like, hey, we really need this to happen. How can we make this happen? And and we find some some middle ground, but uh, VA is not budging. So we're going straight to the lawmakers on this one and and we're going to make this happen.
0: We're speaking with the new Director of Veterans Affairs and Rehabilitation for the American Legion, Shanin Nuntavong, Marine Corps Veteran. Chenin, uh we have a new Secretary of the VA in Robert Wilkie. Has he put anything out on this yet now that he's in the job? Uh, do you have any hope that the VA's stance on it might change with new leadership at the top?
3: Uh, I don't. I don't think the VA's position is going to change, right? We support Secretary Wilkie, and we know he's going to do what's best for veterans, but you know his undersecretary spoke out for him and and they're pretty firm on their stance and and they're not going to budge on, on where they stand but but we're going to we're going to ask congress to make that happen
0: well, and that's all that you can do. And if Congress says it has to happen, then the VA, there's not much that they can do about it. So that's right. That's, that's what it orders. comes down to. Yeah. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's just like in the military chain of command uh, above the VA is Congress. If they put it in, it's got to happen. Let's stick with the VA here and talk about an issue that kind of shocked me when I got out of the military. I wasn't aware of this. And then I got out and found, oh, I'm not eligible for any sort of dental coverage through the VA. Uh, that's something that it appears the American Legion uh, isn't too happy with either, are you?
3: No. Yeah, we, we feel that um, most veterans who are in the VA system aren't able to afford the high costs associated with dental care. Um, you know, a lot of veterans are on a fixed income. So we know that, that our military service, we go to the doctors for our annual checkup, but we go to dental twice a year to get our clean, teeth cleaned and things like that. So healthcare is... Very, very much so associated with dental care, and we'd like to see our veterans get the care they deserve.
0: I also think back to some of the food that I was provided by the military, which uh, maybe not the best for your tooth. Uh, I, I had some eggs in Afghanistan that seemed to have rocks inside of them as one of the ingredients. I mean, there are things that, that happen in the military that affect your dental health, uh, just like they affect your physical health. Uh, why is it, do you think, that the VA doesn't cover dental for the veterans? Is it again just a cost issue more than anything? Uh,
3: your, your guess is as good as mine, Eric, right? The, the, this has been a, a long-going issue, and finally somebody ha- has stepped up to, up to the plate to to change that. So what Senator Sanders has done is put in uh, Veterans Dental Care Eligibility Expansion and Enhancement Act of tw- 2018. So what he's going to do is propose that the VA start a pilot program to see if it's feasible to carry out um, – dental services for for our veterans, and I think, you know, his plan is pretty sound. We support it 100%.
0: How does that plan plan to pay for it? I mean, that's the big question because when, you have, when you're talking about providing an entirely new service in dental, some, some VA hospitals have small dental facilities. So there are issues that are covered uh, for specific dental issues. How do we pay for new facilities, for dental clinics and things like that? How do we pay for the care, for those expensive treatments as you were talking about? Do we have any idea where that kind of money would come from?
3: Yeah, you know, Eric, we don't get into the business of telling VA or... or the lawmakers, where where to find that money? We're, we're just saying that, hey, this is a service that our our, you know, men and women who've
0: sacrificed
3: their lives and their bodies for our country that they deserve this. So, you know, find the money, make it happen.
0: We're speaking to the Director of Veterans Affairs and Rehabilitation at the American Legion, Chenin Nuntavong. Chenin, when you stepped into that job, between uh, besides those two issues that we've already talked about, in Blue Water Navy and the, uh, the dental health care at the VA, what are some of the other big-ticket items that you're focusing on as you move into this new position uh, and start working to, uh, to really help uh, uh, direct Veterans Affairs and Rehabilitation?
3: Yeah, one, one of the things that we're looking forward to is the the new electronic health record program with Cerner. You know, this is going to revolutionize um, healthcare across America. You know, DOD and VA combining their their medical program. So we are looking forward to going down to Kansas City next week to the launch of this program to address, you know, our concerns and make sure that this $10 billion, 10-year, you know, startup program is going to work for veterans.
0: It is a big thing. I mean, it would seem common sense that there should be a seamless transition with your medical records from DOD to VA healthcare, since there are a lot of similarities between the two. But right now, it's a major sticking point, and it causes a lot of problems that it doesn't go through very easily, doesn't it?
3: Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. There's a long list of programs that the current system that VA is using, it's called VISTA. Um, they're clinical and non-clinical, like, I would call apps or components within those, um, the VISTA program that we want to make sure that Cerner is going to be able to follow through and transition into. The great thing about this is DOD has already gone through this early on, um, and we can learn from their mistakes and their hiccups. So I think the transition for VA is going to be a lot easier.
0: Do you have concerns with the, the time that it's taken for this to happen? I mean, it's been talked about for so long. How close do you think we are to actually seeing the day where, uh, you know, the, the who's going to be the first veteran to get out and have that seamless transition of their records? And when do you think that person's getting out of the military?
3: Yeah, so we, we aren't sure yet, right? We're still watching Cerner roll out and ensuring, you know, our concerns are being heard. So once we... See the launch next week we'll be able to to better answer those questions here.
0: Well, and there are a lot of questions that need to be answered when it comes to uh, a lot of things, and we've seen a lot of changes that are going to help veterans. We hope. Recently, we've seen a lot of changes to the uh, the Forever GI Bill, and uh, w- what has been the American Legion's thoughts on the changes to this uh, Forever GI Bill? Some changes that came into effect, uh, you know, shortly after the thing was created, where they they've made some some kind of rapid changes. Some seemingly in a good way, some maybe in a not so good way. How are you viewing the Forever GI Bill and, and the most recent? Iteration of it yeah
3: you know eric uh we we support the forever gi bill we helped write the the policy for it but i can tell you that i'm not the expert in that it's not a, a health care or you know a, a benefits related issue so
1: i could you on that if you
3: want y- yeah yeah go ahead joe
1: yeah no I, eric like you said overall you know we're, we're happy with the bill um and So, you know, we were on the ground floor of, of drafting the, what's become the Colmory uh, GI Bill. Uh, but one thing that we were disappointed by is is DOD unilaterally slapping a 16-year uh, cap on the transferability of the benefit. Right. And, uh, and we're voicing our objection to that, to DOD. And we're also convening a roundtable of, of veteran service organizations and military support organizations today here at our – our headquarters at 1608 K Street to discuss, you know, what are the next steps we want to do? And you already see the letter from several uh, congressional leaders go over to General Mattis or Secretary Mattis uh, expressing displeasure with that decision.
0: And that, of course, is Joe Plensler from the American Legion stepping in there to take the uh, to take the answer on that question. Yeah, uh, yeah you, that that transferability up. at 16 years. It seems like they're doing that because at that point, uh, the service member is kind of uh, committed. They're pot committed, to use a poker term, where they're, they're going to have to do their 20 years. It's not like they're going to get out and protest over that. So it seems like uh, uh, very questionable that DOD is deciding to do that.
1: Yeah, we we suspect that it's because that DOD is not making their recruiting goals. And uh, we think it 's an effort to you know, specifically target the children of, of these veterans for military recruitment, so yeah. uh, we 're trying to get better answers when when our staffers went over to the Pentagon to, uh, to take a brief from the DoD on this they, they did not get adequate uh, reasons for the change, so you know in the absence of of an adequate response, you know all we can do right now is speculate, which is always dangerous.
0: It absolutely is. And we're speaking with Joe Plensler from the American Legion, but also with Chenin Nuntavong, recently named the Director of Veterans Affairs and Rehabilitation. Chinin, we touched on this a little bit earlier when talking about Blue Water Navy. Let's focus on burn pits specifically for a little bit right now. There are several pieces of legislation uh, that, that aim to address this in different ways. We have the recent one introduced by uh, two members of Congress who both served in the Army in Tulsi Yabbard and Brian Mast. Uh, it, again, like the Blue Water Navy issue, seems... Uh, a no-brainer, but it's something that it's taking a lot of time. What? How close are we to getting uh, the the changes that we need made to how the VA deals with burn pits?
3: Yeah, I don't think we're, we're close enough, Eric, to to where we need to be. You know, uh, VA is still encouraging everybody to to register for for burn pits so they can, you know, get a good count. And and our guys are lobbying every day, um, and and talking to congressmen about how we we move forward with this the right legislation so we're we're not as close as we need to be
0: and again the the question that i think the average person would have and and i think you have a better understanding of how things work in dc than uh, most of us do what is the holdup if everybody agrees on something why does it take so long uh to to get there is it just arguing over the specifics arguing over different plans or is it something else
3: yeah so so it's a little bit of everything right What we are still trying to to get is bona fide medical uh backing on this, and you know it it's just so much and so complicated that you know we we need to make sure that everything is lined up right and so that this is a a solid case that we can go to to the lawmakers and have the right bills put into place.
0: You know, there's an old saying in carpentry, measure measure twice, cut once, and I totally understand that, but there gets a point where it's like, all right, just cut it already. I mean, what are you waiting for? And I think a lot of people are getting that feeling, I mean, especially on the Blue Water Navy issue, because we're talking decades there, and with berm pits, I, it's, it's been an issue for a long time, and as you said, we're not as close as we need to be. You'd like things to be closer. What are your hopes for the next, let's say, the next 12 to 24 months that we're actually able to make progress on issues like burn pits, issues like Blue Water Navy? I mean, is it is it is it a far off in the distance thing, or is it maybe within a year or two from now we see some significant uh, change?
3: You know, I, I can't give you a, a good day, Derek. You know, I can just tell you that the American Legion and other veteran service organizations are going to continue to fight for our, our veterans' benefits and... You know, we'll fight every day until we we get action. And that's what I can tell you.
0: We're speaking with the Director of Veterans Affairs and Rehabilitation at the American Legion, Shanin Nuntabong. Now, Shanin, if people want to find out more about what the American Legion does when it comes to advocating for veterans, when it comes to their health, when it comes to their rehabilitation and all the various affairs that veterans have uh, with the VA, where can they go to find out about the work that you guys are doing and what can they do if they want to personally get involved with what the Legion is doing?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I recommend everybody go check out legion.org. dot org. It's a one stop shop for for everything from benefits to services uh, to discounts, if if that's what you're interested in. Um, and I recommend you know everybody look at joining a veteran service organization. It's it's you know a cost of lunch at a, a fancy restaurant for a year's membership to these organizations. And we sit here and we lobby and for for benefits for everybody's benefits, all veterans, not just our members. And I encourage everybody to to look into that.
0: There's also something very important that the VSOs do, including the American Legion, which is their service officers, which are not just available to the membership of the organizations, but are available to all veterans to help them deal with uh, the the confusing issues that can come up when you get out and you're dealing with the VA and trying to file claims and things like that. Uh, How important is that service officer program to the Legion, and where can people go specifically to find out about what the service officers can provide to the veterans?
3: Yeah, so our we have 3,600 service officers across the United States, and their job is to provide services, you know, to help with people file their claims. It's a hard process. It's a a long process. We have to um, make sure everybody's accredited appropriately. As a matter of fact, next week or this week, I am going to Indianapolis to host a school. Um, We're going to have about 150 service officers come in and give them updates on what's going on with you know, the law, uh, the appeals process, things like that. And you know, any questions you have, you can ask a service officer and they'll be able to help you walk you through things. And it's a great resource. Everybody should, should check it out. And once again, Legion.org is a great resource to find out uh, how you can talk to a service officer near you.
0: It absolutely is. Check out legion.org. And if you're interested in joining a VSO, hey, the American Legion is a great one. And we enjoy talking to them every Wednesday here on The Morning Briefing. Our guest today has been Chanin Nuntabong, the newly named Director of Veterans Affairs and Rehabilitation. Chanin, thank you so much for your time today. We appreciate it as always. All right, Eric. Thank you. You're listening to The Morning Briefing on Intercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets every day. It's our slogan, and it's what we do. Eric Dame and Jake Hughes here in studio with you again. Our thanks to Chenin Nuntavong from the American Legion for joining us. Great every Wednesday to talk to the American Legion. A couple things from that interview, Jake, that really stick out to me. One is the fact that it seems that there's such clear agreement on the Blue Water Navy issue as well as the burn pits issue. These are two things that there are very few, if any, politicians who are saying like, no, 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 we don't need to give any benefits to these Blue Water Navy veterans or no, 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 we don't need to keep track of who was near the burn pits. There seems to be near complete agreement on both of those things, but it's taking so long. And in the case of Blue Water Navy, we're talking decades that these veterans have not been eligible for the same benefits that those who were exposed to the same chemical had the same results on land. Uh, just because they were at sea, like we know that they were uh, exposed to it. We know that they've shown the same health issues. I just it it boggles the mind how slow things can move when there's agreement on all sides. I understand when when there's a big argument between the parties or whoever the case may be on Capitol Hill. But when everything seems to be agreed upon. I just sit there and I think, well, what the heck is taking so long, guys, you know?
1: It's the government, man. They got to pinch every single penny they want. And they'll pay lip service to veterans. They'll say, oh, yes, we support these causes. We need to help these veterans.
0: When the rubber hits the road and it's time to spend the money, they're like, eh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's that's kind of what the issue comes down to. And, and as Chinin said, the VSOs aren't particularly involved at all in where the money comes from. That's the government's job to figure out where the money is going to come from. The VSOs are there to make sure that everyone is aware of what these things are and to get the legislation passed. And then it's on the government to figure out where the money is going to come from. It's on Congress and the VA and whoever else. Really, I think it sounds like it's on the VA when it comes to figuring out where the money is going to come from. Congress puts the 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 laws into action, and then the VA is responsible for enacting them. So, I, you know, I understand where the VA could be like, oh, we don't have the money for this. Find it. <laughs> Figure <laughs> it out. I mean, that's your job. You're, you, that you, it reminds me of being in the military, you know, when you were a, a young soldier and I was a young sailor, and you'd have, uh, you know, the, the staff sergeant or the first class, in my case, the LPO, telling you, all right, we well, need to get this done. Well, I, I don't know. How, how do I get that done? I don't have the right things to do it figure it out man adapt and overcome that's yep. kind of what you have to do Fake and it, it's it's just on a a larger level you know sometimes sometimes you got to make a sandwich out of soup that's just what you got to do so figure out where the money's coming from the interesting thing on there something that we mentioned earlier is that the VA is starting the VA <laughs> the American Legion is starting to push for dental care for veterans at the VA that would take a lot of money yeah. I think that would end up probably costing uh, more than the, uh, the the Blue Water Navy issue and the, and the burn pits issue. Maybe not, but when you consider that, like it, it, I was in Afghanistan, I wasn't around any burn pits for any length of time, so it's not something that would affect me. But dental care, that's something that would certainly, uh, particularly when I got out, would have been helpful. I was eating something and I had a cavity and a tooth that I didn't realize was there. I was eating and then all of a sudden the tooth literally broke in half. And I didn't have any dental coverage at the time because I wasn't married yet, so I wasn't on my wife's insurance. The VA didn't cover dental, so I had a half a tooth uh, in my mouth for like, I don't know, nine months or something like that <laughs> until I could get it taken care of. And that's that's not a good way to go through life, let me tell you. With food getting stuck in there and the pain that comes along with it, with a nerve being exposed, I, if I had been able to go to the VA and get that fixed up, that would have been that would have been great. That would have been wonderful, but that wasn't the case. The American Legion is uh, looking like they're starting to try and push for changing that and making sure that our veterans get full care because health care that includes your dental care as well. Well, you're listening to The Morning Briefing, Wednesday edition. I'm your host, Eric Dame. JQs is your producer. And coming up in just a few moments, we're going to speak with Dan Hampton, retired Air Force F-16 pilot and author of the new book, Chasing the Demon, as well as a number of other books. We're going to talk to him about writing, what he recommends for people who have a great book idea, and about his new book that challenges the common thoughts that Chuck Yeager was the guy who broke the sound barrier. Coming back with Dan Hampton on The Morning Briefing right after this.
2: Helping military veterans stay connected.
0: We make it easy.
2: We're CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting vets every day. Online
0: and all over social media. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. At ConnectingVets. Welcome back to the morning briefing on Intercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting that's every day is our slogan, because it's what we do. And I'll tell you why we do. Because each and every member of our team knows what it's like to have worn the uniform and knows what it's like to have taken it off that last time. For example, 13 years in the Navy for myself, 13 years in the Army for Jake. Add the two of us together. We're a 26-year E-12. And that is very impressive if you know anything about the rank system. Our next guest, he wasn't in the Navy or in the Army. In fact, He was in the Air Force as a pilot of the F 16, and now he is a best selling author. Please welcome Dan Hampton to the show. Dan, good morning. How are you doing today? Good morning. Thanks. The sun is adequate raining for a change, so I'm happy. Yeah, you know what? Same thing here that we're dealing with. So first off, Dan, before we talk about your amazing new book, Chasing the Demon, uh, and all the other work you've done since leaving the Air Force, let's talk about your time in the Air Force. Where are you from? When did you join? And I already mentioned it, but what did you do while you were serving in the Air Force?
2: Uh, Well, I, I grew up on the East Coast, but I went to college in Texas. And then after I finished that, I got into the Air Force and went to flight school and became a fighter pilot eventually. Spent uh, the next 20 years uh, pretty much all over. I spent a lot of time in Europe and the Middle East, both Gulf Wars. Uh, I went through the U.S. Air Force Fighter Weapons School. I generally had an exceptional time, did everything I wanted to, and decided 20 years in one day was enough and got out.
0: 20 years in one day is most certainly enough. 13 years was enough for me. But yeah, 20 years, totally understand that. When you think back to that point in time, when you retire, when you decide, I love the F-16, I love flying, I love doing all this stuff, but it's time for me to leave the United States Air Force. What sticks out in your memory of that period of time in your life?
2: Well, I was happy that I went on my own terms. And I I think you know what I mean. Uh, Again, I I was There's no other place in the world where you could fly fighter jets like that except in the military. But in the Air Force, at least, you know, when you get above the rank of lieutenant colonel, maybe colonel, you don't fly anymore. They they have some silly idea that you'd better serve the military sitting behind a desk at the Pentagon, and that just wasn't for me.
0: Yeah, I mean, I've heard that from senior officers in the Navy pilots and Air Force pilots where uh, they'll basically pay lip service to the fact that they're pilots by making sure that they meet the minimum uh, required amount of flight hours, but they're not doing anything operational anymore. So was that a big part of the reason for you retiring and moving on? And and what was your plan when you retired from the Air Force?
2: That that was a a big part of it. I I had been part of uh, the F-22 program and was a little bit disillusioned. Uh, with that entire process and the the senior leadership, if you want to call them that. So I figured, you know, enough is enough. A lot of guys, and you know this, they're trepidatious about about getting out of the military because that's all they've ever known and they're not sure what they're going to do. I wasn't sure what I was going to do, but I knew that I could find something and I could deal with it. So uh, that's what I did.
0: A lot of military pilots end up going on to be pilots in the civilian world, whether flying freight or flying uh, airliners, private jets. Uh, is that something that you ever did or something that you ever considered doing? Or were you pretty much done flying when you left the Air Force?
2: No, I still love to fly, and I, I went ahead and got an airline transport rating just in case. But I, I wanted a break, so I, I bought a really big sailboat and I went down to the Caribbean for a couple years. And uh, after after a few years of that and trying to grow a ponytail, which uh, didn't come into too well, <laughs> I, I went into the private military world. Uh, went back over to the Middle East for a few years as a merc- I'm sorry, a private contractor, not mercenary. We can't say that. And uh, then I, I, I sort of blundered into writing. I was very happy. It worked out the way it did. It was not intentional, um, but uh, but it did. And it, I you know I got to say I love the lifestyle.
0: It sounds like, Dan Hampton, you had some bumps in the road, and that's who we're speaking to, former United States Air Force pilot, current best-selling author Dan Hampton, author of the new book, Chasing the Demon. It sounds like there were some bumps in the road from uh, the minor to uh, not being able to grow a ponytail. I don't even know if I can. My wife won't let me grow my hair out long. But uh, you know, when you think back to the trials and tribulations after leaving the Air Force, not knowing exactly what you wanted to do, uh, finding your way through it. What would you recommend to people who are going through something similar, whether it's, uh, you know, an Air Force pilot getting out or a, a basic airman who just finished their uh, four-year contract and is leaving the Air Force or whatever branch of service? What do you think is the biggest takeaway that you can give to them about uh, working through the difficulties when you get out?
2: Marry money. <laughs> no, just just kidding. Uh, you know what? Everybody needs to realize that that they can do this, whatever this is. And you may be, you know, you may be a little uh, apprehensive about it. But, you know, after serving in the military, it's nothing you can't do. And I would say don't ever forsake a chance of happiness, you know, in the name of fear. Don't take a a job you think you're going to hate just because you think you have to. I mean, figure it out in advance. Plan. We're all really good at planning. You know, plan to the extent that you can and then take the leap. You know, it's a great big world out there. Go see it.
0: And as you mentioned, you got into, uh, it sounds like a number of different things after you got out, uh, working as a, a contractor, getting your commercial airline rating and all of that good stuff. But you ended up moving on to the field of literature. Tell me about your background as far as writing. I mean, did you ever enjoy writing when you were in high school or college or while you were in the military? Or is this a recent development for you?
2: Well, I, I did enjoy writing early on. Uh, when I was in college, my, my first degree was in architecture. So not a whole lot of writing there. And then, uh, you know, as you know, the military, you get mired in writing OPRs reports, technical stuff. So I, I really didn't do much of it while I was, I was flying fighters. I was, I was too busy. Um, you know, I, I I I really don't know how I was so fortunate that that it made sense for me to do it. I think it's kind of like flying or any other skill that, you know, people have. You can develop it and you certainly should, but you've got to you've got to be born with something. You can't just start from scratch if if you get what I'm saying. And when you figure out what that is, whatever that is, I would say use it, do it. You know, it's a a chance to be on your own. It's a chance to be independent. It's a chance to, to call the shots in your own life. So don't pass that up.
0: Of course, Dan, you've found success in the literary world, but how did you first enter it? What was the aha moment where you realized you wanted to be a writer or that you were good at writing if there even was one?
2: Uh, the aha moment came uh, in southern Iraq. I, As I said, I'd been a mercenary for, I'm sorry, a contractor for a couple of years, and I had another close call, got hurt, and figured, you know what, I've got a new baby. I'm going I'm to write some of my life down for this kid in case something happens to me. And it just happened to be very, very good timing. I, I ended up with the same editor at HarperCollins that did Chris Kyle's book, and that was very popular, you know, five, six years ago. And and I, I was frankly surprised when after we were finished, he said, hey, do you got anything else? <laughs> and I said, well, you know, as a matter of fact, I do. And and we've just we've never stopped from there. We've put out, uh, you know, a book a year for six years now.
0: That's a lot of writing, and, and as someone who's, I, I think, I think of myself as an okay writer. I write articles on ConnectingVets.com, dot I've never uh, taken on anything quite like a book. When you first got started doing that, was there any worry, like, oh man, I don't know if I'm going to be able to actually get this done, or was it something that you were confident in your abilities in from the start?
2: Well, I, I have to, I have to say, like a lot of folks in the military, self doubt is not has never been much of an issue. <laughs> uh and and I, and I don't mean to sound cocky with that. I'm just saying confidence and the military is very good for building that confidence is is really important. It never occurred to me that once I got into this that I wouldn't uh succeed now that said, boy, I had a lot to learn because there's you know it's a different way of thinking, a different way of writing. Uh, I went back to to school and got another master's degree, you know, in 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 a uh, a master's of arts, which which helped immensely, um, you know. But but it's a business, and I had to learn that. and the, And the process of actually writing a book, you know, you pick one up on a bookshelf, and and you don't really think about all the work that goes into it. But it takes me a year to a year and a half to write each book. And, you know, that's just the research and the writing. It doesn't really count the editing and all the other stuff that goes into it. So it's very complicated but very fulfilling. And as I said earlier, the best part about it is my time is my own.
0: And actually, putting out a book a year—that's that's a pretty rapid clip for most authors. I mean, I think about uh, one of my favorite authors, Eric Larson. He gets a book out once every five years or so, or something like that. So, uh, do you think that your military background has actually helped you in being uh, more efficient than maybe some other writers are in getting out books on an annual basis?
2: Yeah, I think that's a lot to do with it. I I can uh, I manage time, you know, very well, like like most military folks do. And, uh, and, you know, you, you've got to be organized. You've got to set priorities. All those things that we sort of take for granted during military life translate very well to this sort of thing. You know, you've got to be kind of a self-starter. Nobody's going to stand over me and say, you have to write this many pages per day. Uh, so in that respect, the military was a, a very good training ground.
0: We're speaking with Dan Hampton, best-selling author and retired United States Air Force Lieutenant Colonel. He was a Viper pilot in the United States Air Force. And when you look through uh, the books that you've written, Dan, I start to notice a theme. You've, of course, got your memoir, Viper Pilot, a memoir of air combat. You've got Lords of the Sky, fighter pilots and air combat, the hunter killers, uh, about your experiences in F-16, wild weasel pilot, the flight. I, I guess write about what you know, right? Did you plan to, uh, to write so much about the, uh, the the pilot community and the community that you were such a big part of and a community that you obviously love?
2: No, not at all. I, I wanted. I actually wanted to write fiction. Uh, and I did. I put out a, a novel called The Mercenary, uh, which which did very well. Uh but uh, I was surprised to learn early on that nonfiction actually sells much better than fiction unless you happen to be Nelson DeMille or Tom Clancy, which I'm not. Uh and and it's a collaborative effort, you know, when, when I have the advantage of an editor at, at the largest publisher in the world saying, I think you should think about writing this you know, that sort of takes the decision out of it, and we figure out the best way to get whatever this is across, and then I, I write it. So it's it's an enviable position. I'd like to branch out a little more, but I can't argue with, with the rationale and reasoning behind it
0: or the success and you've had some pretty great success with the books that you've written uh, including your novel The Mercenary the ones I just mentioned and your newest book Chasing the Demon which is interesting and I just mentioned uh, Eric Larson one of my favorite authors who just wrote a book about the uh, the sinking of the Lusitania which a lot of people thought well there's not much new to be told about that story of course he found it Chasing the Demon is about the efforts of pilots to break the sound barrier which I didn't think there was much new to learn about the subject but it, it appears I was quite wrong about that, huh?
2: Well, thank you for saying so. That's that's kind of the point with this. And that's one of the things I love to do is to find things that, as you said, we think we've been told the whole story or we've been taught it a certain way in school or, you know, God forbid, seen a movie about it, so it must be true. And, uh, you know, that's rarely the case. And I love to dig around and uncover things that uh, a lot of people may not know a whole lot about.
0: And when it comes to the breaking of the sound barrier where, I, I mean, I think if you ask the average person if they have any idea, they're going to throw out some names that they've heard in the past and uh, hope that they get it right. They're going to talk about Chuck Yeager. They're going to talk about all the other people. What do you think is the most interesting thing about the story of those pilots that that we just don't know about?
2: Well, uh, the most there's a, there's a lot of interesting things. Uh, one of the most inspirational things is I think – something that we all today in this in this environment and in this increasingly sort of divided ill-mannered you know society that we we seem to be evolving into is that there was a time and could still be a time when there are genuinely admirable people out there that we can that we can look to despite what we see and hear about all the time because we're inundated with bad news these days there is some good news and mm-hmm. and one of the things I, I, I get asked frequently is do you think that people today still have it in them to do something like this and my answer is of course uh, a yes because you know do people make the times or do times make the people however it works out America is still uh, the, the most powerful the greatest country in the world. And the people that made it so are still here. And if need came, you know, to, to do something spectacular or extraordinarily dangerous, like uh, break the sound barrier or go to Mars or whatever's next, then we would do it. And I think people need to remember that we still have that potential as a, as a country.
0: Chasing the demon, the name of the book. Of course, the demon is the sound barrier. Why were pilots naming it something so uh fearsome and something that might sound like you don't want to mess with it?
2: Well, the demon is actually the challenge. It's it's whatever the next challenge is that's out there, you know, just over the horizon, on the other side of the cloud, you know, whatever or however you want to phrase it, the demon is the next thing that we are obsessed with that we we feel drawn to try to conquer. And in this case, you know, it was it was the speed of sound, uh, and in fact, there really is no physical sound barrier. There never was. Uh, I've been supersonic thousands of times, like like all modern fighter pilots have, and it's it's a non-event. In fact, it was a non-event for Chuck Yeager. He said so in his report. The real challenge was getting up to Mach one. It's what's called the transonic region, and that's where. There were controllability issues and, and other problems that, you know, were putting planes out of control and killing pilots.
0: Let me ask you, is it actually somewhat similar to when you're driving a car and, you know, when you first start off, you can kind of feel the car off and struggling with that uh, initial get up to speed, but then, you know, going through a speed limit, going past 55 to 60, there's really no difference. Is it something similar to that for a pilot?
2: in a way i mean it's just a number you know it the, the, there's not a black circle that appears <laughs> from your peripheral vision and music of course doesn't play it's it's really it's really like i said a a non event it was very important though because it it marked a point that we had evolved to aerodynamically uh engine technology wise you know to to be able to get to that point the the existence of of supersonic flight uh, had been well known. And I was surprised at how far back it went. You know, I put in the book, there was a, an English vicar who quite accurately measured the speed of sound by firing off shotguns between two church steeples. He knew the exact distance between them. And so he was able to measure, you know, the time it took for sound to travel. Um, This, this was not a new thing. What was new and what was uh, made possible largely through the war was the technology that permitted manned flight to actually go supersonic. You know, the germans had done it with uh, with rockets they 'd been doing it you know for years during the war with the v two rocket uh, bullets you know were were known to be supersonic you know and hence the noise and in fact the x one the basic design is is copied from a fifty caliber rifle shell. Um, so they knew about it. They just, they had to develop, you know, the, the structures, the aerodynamics and the power plant, you know, to get an aircraft with a man in it through uh, the speed of sound.
0: We're speaking with Dan Hampton, retired United States Air Force Lieutenant Lieutenant Colonel and author of a number of best-selling books. The newest is Chasing the Demon, uh, which tells some untold tales from the efforts to break the sound barrier. Of course, Chuck Yeager is the name that comes to mind for most people who know anything about the story, even if they don't know the details. I won't get uh, too much into spoiling anything in the book, but Dan, you present some evidence that uh, maybe there was somebody else who did it and maybe there were some, uh, well kind of typical government reasons for not wanting that person to uh, get the credit for it. How surprised were you by what you learned in doing the research and the interviews and everything that you did for the book? Was was it a shock to you or had you heard about some of this stuff before?
2: No, I heard about it and people have been talking about this ever since 1947. I'm, I'm hardly the first one to, you know, to bring this up. And, and I will point out that, that Jaeger is officially credited with, with this for good reason. He was the first one to officially be acknowledged as breaking uh, the sound barrier. There is anecdotal evidence that uh, a German, maybe two of them, did it during the war, but again, no proof. Uh, that's, in, that's, in fact, how the book starts is with one of those cases. And then there is really more conclusive proof, but again, Undocumented as yet, uh, that George Welch, uh, another uh, fighter pilot who was now working as a civilian test pilot, exceeded the speed of sound two weeks before Chuck Yeager did. And what I present in the book is. Uh, background on Welch. Remember, he was one of the two guys that got airborne at Pearl Harbor and, and fought the Japanese. And then he went on to, you know, to fight to fly a combat for about 18 months in the Pacific before he caught malaria and had to go home. So when you know about this guy, the type of person he was, and then you, you, you learn about the XP-86, obviously the prototype of the F-86 that he was testing, he was in the right place at the right time with exactly the right airplane. Why wouldn't he do this? Uh, He was well acquainted with with sound barrier, knew what it was all about. And so, uh, you know, the evidence supports the conclusion that, in fact, he did, you know, nose the XP-86 over in a dive past the speed of sound. Now, the government wanted to keep it quiet because the Air Force had just become the Air Force. It had just broken off Mm -hmm. from the Navy, and the new secretary of the Air Force, a guy named Stuart Symington, wanted to hang his hat on something to show, hey, look, we really do need to be a separate service and therefore justify the huge funding you know, streams you're going to get us. Look, look at what we did. We just you know, went supersonic, first, first people to do it. So he basically told everybody else, including North American Aviation, that the Air Force would be first no matter what. So that's why it fell out the way that it did.
0: And it's an interesting story. The details of which can, be, which can be found in the book, Chasing the Demon, by Dan Hampton, retired United States Air Force Lieutenant Colonel, who we're speaking with right now. Of course, Chuck Yeager, one of the subjects of the book, a lot of people might not realize this, 95 years old, he's still around. Have you heard anything from Chuck himself or from his uh, his family in regards to the book, in regards to the fact that, you know, uh, whether Welch uh, actually was the first one or not?
2: We communicated a couple times, and then I think his his second wife closed it down. She's done that with just about everybody in his life, as I understand it. Uh, his reply to all of this is as it has been all these years, and and probably quite right. He says, "Show me the evidence," hmm. and you can't you know you can't really argue with that. I think that he knows this really happened. Uh, he would never admit to it though. And you know, he's, he's built his life and his career on it. So I can't, I can't blame him there. And, you know, regardless of who broke it, it's important to realize these were all brave, talented guys who were taking chances that they didn't need to. My primary source of information, uh, for a lot of this was Ken Schillstrom, who is 96, still very much alive. And he, uh, was Chuck Yeager's boss and he was actually offered the position first yeah, with the X-1 program, and he declined because he didn't believe in the rocket. He didn't believe uh, that, that that was the future of the Air Force, and he wanted to be the XP-86 uh, program manager once the Air Force took uh, possession of it.
0: There's so much to this story that, you know, I remember learning about in school, but I've probably learned more in the last five, ten minutes that we've been talking about chasing the demon than I did in any of those things or any of the TV shows I watch or even maybe even some of the movies that that have been made about the subject. Dan Hampton's new book, Chasing the Demon, takes a deep dive into who actually broke the sound barrier and, of course those who lost their lives trying to, the anecdotes he mentioned about the possibility of World War II pilots uh, uh, breaking it during World War II. Uh, Dan, if people are interested in finding out more about the book and purchasing the book, where can they go to do so?
2: Uh, pretty much everywhere. There's Barnes & Noble, uh, Amazon, of course. Uh, local bookstores Bookstores have it. Uh, I love to hear from people. I, I get lots of great feedback, so... Uh, there's a HarperCollins uh, Facebook page uh, for me. Uh, feel free to to get a hold of me with anything. Uh, it may take me a while to answer, but I always do. And and as always, if you like the book, I certainly welcome the reviews, the Amazon reviews and Barnes and Noble reviews. So uh, feel free to contact me with with any questions. And I, I hope everybody enjoys it. I sure learned a lot writing it.
0: Dan, one last thing for you, and that is there are veterans out there who might think that they have a great idea for a book, but they just don't know how to how to get started they don't know what the process should be like for them it can be a daunting process what advice would you give for those aspiring veteran authors out there
2: it is, it is daunting, and it is not easy to break into. I would recommend you go to the reference section at, at, a, at, a, at a Barnes & Noble, and there's a number of books on how to find a literary agent, which is what you're going to need to break into this, and the latest and greatest on, on how to make uh, your, your dream, your idea, uh, become reality. And then don't give up. I kept all 42 of my initial rejection letters. So, uh, you know, everybody goes through that. Don't ever give up. If you believe in yourself, you can make it happen.
0: Wise words from Dan Hampton, author of Chasing the Demon and Retired Air Force F-16 Pilot. Really interesting stuff brought up by this book. Of course, we were all taught that Chuck Yeager was the guy who broke the sound barrier. And some of you might say well, this is revisionist history, but if it's true, well, that's the case. And of course, Jake, as he was talking about the fact that the man who apparently may have broken it before Jaeger wasn't serving in the Air Force at that time. He'd already gotten out and was working for a contractor, and it just looked better for the military for one of our pilots to have done it, you know, one of the Air Force guys. So kind of makes sense, particularly from back in that area when it's not like there'd be some Twitter post like, oh, look, I got video of the guy flying by. Different era, different time, different stuff. But But really interesting things that uh, might change uh, the conversation around the sound barrier just a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. But I mean, I like to keep my heroes. Though I like Chuck Yeager, and I want a hero. He's still a hero. He's just maybe not the guy who broke the sound barrier. <laughs> it's very interesting stuff and an interesting show here on The Morning Briefing. I'm your host, Eric Dame. JQs is your producer. And while today's show is coming to an end, have no fear. We've got more coming your way tomorrow. We've got a bunch of great interviews lined up, including we're going to talk to Joe Schinelli from AMVETS and uh, the AMVETS National Conference is coming up soon. So all that coming up tomorrow. It'll be right here. Have a great day. Morning Briefing. See you tomorrow.